Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Call it the rescue week, with a president trying to rescue buyers at the gas pump, earnings trying to rescue troubled markets, and a British government just plain needing a rescue, period. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on having to make hard choices to get inflation down. If your deficit projection starts to get out of uh, control and your real interest rates uh, start to rise, you can get into a kind of doom loop. And Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute on whether President Xi's ideology can get China's economy growing again. Xi's facing a lot of headwinds when it comes to the economy. It was a tough time on Global Wall Street, but nowhere was it tougher than at number 10 Downing Street, where Liz Truss is on her way to becoming the shortest serving prime minister in British history, forced to resign after concluding she just couldn't get done what she'd set out to do. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. 
It wasn't easy for President Biden either, as he continued to fight high gas prices, for which he largely blamed the oil companies, and countered with yet another release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The Department of Energy released another 15 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, extending our previously announced release through the month of December. The markets spent the week looking for some form of rescue from earnings, and they did get a bit of it from companies like Netflix, with Reed Hastings giving thanks. Well, thank God we're done with shrinking quarters. So that's the big feeling of we're back to the positivity. But Tesla didn't help much by disappointing on sales, though Elon Musk predicted it would make it up in the fourth quarter. As our factories ramp, we're looking forward to a record-breaking Q4. So it really, knock on wood, it looks, looks like we'll have an epic end of year. And although Goldman Sachs earnings were a pleasant surprise, Chief DJ Officer David Solomon said they have a fair amount of work to do. Importantly, talent is moving around tremendously at Goldman Sachs to align behind David Solomon's new, new vision. What the remix. It? The remix. I like that. Oh, boy. <laughs> And at the end of what was a wild week, the markets did find some relief finally with the S&P 500 up 4.74% for the week, while the Nasdaq was up 5.22%. And it was all pretty much driven by anticipation of where the Fed is heading, as the yield on the 10-year climbed for much of the week, but after peaking over 4.33% midday on Friday, it fell to 4.2% to end the week. While the two-year, well, the two-year fell 13 basis points on Friday alone, after speculation grew that the central bank might just slow its rate hikes after November. To take us through the week in the markets, we welcome now Urian Timmer. He's Director of Global Macro for Fidelity Management and Sanal Desai, CIO for the Franklin Templeton Fixed Income Group. Welcome both of you back to Wall Street Week. Good to have you here. Sanal, let me start with you because so much of this week I think was driven off of fixed income, particularly those treasury rates. So what did we see this week and why were there so many apparently violent moves up and down? It was a crazy week, but it's been several crazy weeks. I think until the market gets a sense of where the Fed is going to go and stop, we're going to keep getting these wild bouts of volatility. We've been expecting it for a while. In a sense, you know, there was not that much of news in in the Fed saying that they're close to being done. Well, of course they are. We already know that we're going to get up to five, maybe 5.25, maybe a bit more, but quite early in the new year. It's pretty clear that they will be getting close to an end. We get a 75, maybe we get another 50, after which do we get another 50, another 25? I think the more interesting thing is what happens after that. Once the market feels that they know that the Fed is not going to pivot on a dime, I think we might get to a point where we stop seeing these wild back and forth because these are these are truly massive moves in the treasury market. And uh, I would just note that every single data point is going to carry with it this level of gravity in terms of the moves that we see until we get to the stage that the market buys what the Fed is selling. And Urian, where are we headed? Where is the Fed headed? Because as I look at Bloomberg right now, the Fed futures rate looks like it's about 5.05. At one point this week, it was up close to 5.2 in terms of a terminal rate. Yeah, so when you look at the, the, the SOFR curve, uh, it's, it peaks at around 5%. Um, 
Um, and you look at the, you know, the implied terminal rate, you know, it, it's around the, it's around the same. You know, the markets have been in a relentless uh, mode of price discovery this year, right? And the glass has been half empty for the last nine months where, you know, every time we think maybe the markets are bottoming and the Fed's going to be close to being done, uh, that moving target starts to, starts to move again in the wrong direction. But I, I do think we're, we're getting to a more glass half full mode. And I I think that's what the stock market is starting uh, to signal here that, you know, at this point, the expectations for the Fed are are so bad, in, in, meaning they're going to go so far that the the possibility of a surprise may start to, you know, go more in, in our favor. So maybe the Fed doesn't have to go all the way to five, maybe it only needs to go to four and a half. Um, you know, financial conditions have tightened significantly. Uh, so maybe the Fed is closer to being done than we think. But, you know, I think the Fed is pretty committed to getting inflation back towards its target of, let's say, two, two and a half percent. And, you know, we're a long ways from that. And so I think the risk is not so much that the Fed overshoots or undershoots in the near term, but that it's going to take longer to get back to a neutral policy after it gets to that terminal point. Sanal Desai and Yuri and Tim are going to be staying with us as we turn to what investors should be doing in these uncertain times. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Does Governor Reagan now concede that it would be inflationary if we just cut federal taxes and didn't cut federal spending. I don't know whether he does or doesn't, but that's not his program. His program is, in fact, to cut taxes significantly, 10% a year over the next three years each year, 
but also to restrain the growth in federal spending. That, of course, is Louis Rukeyser talking with a pre-chairman, Alan Greenspan, on Wall Street Week back on October 24, 1980, back when Alan was simply part of Townsend, Greenspan, and Company. It was just before Governor Reagan was elected president, and the concern back then was about tax cuts without spending cuts, something that, frankly, we're still talking about today. The top movie back then was Goldie Hawn's Private Benjamin and Woman in Love, do you remember it, by Barbara Streisand, topped the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the week. Still with us are Sanal Desai of Franklin Templeton and Yuri Timmer of Fidelity Management. You, you, so let's start with you. What's an investor to do in this environment where we do have inflation that seems to be broad, maybe entrenched? We have a Fed that's on the move. What does an investor do? What's overpriced? What's underpriced? Well, you know, the, the good news is um, uh, in, in, a, in a period where there isn't very much of it uh, is that both the 40 and the 60 side of the 60-40 paradigm, I think, are now, you know, really attractively valued. I mean, you can get a 10-year yield, at a 10-year note at 4.2, a two-year note at 4.5. You can buy the S&P 500 at around 15, 16 times forward earnings. Now, that PE is only as good as the forward earnings. So we, we will find out whether the earnings hold. So far, they have. So valuations have had a tremendous reset from the overvaluation days you know, following the COVID lockdown, when the Fed basically repressed interest rates down to much lower levels than they really deserve to be. Uh, and that raised you know, asset price inflation in the stock market, because again, interest rates are an important uh, factor in, in valuation. And so it's been a very painful nine months, uh, during which neither the 40 nor the 60 has worked. That's a very unusual environment to be in. But I think, you know, the good news is that if the Fed does overshoot, I think the 40 will really present a lot of value at 4% plus yields, and maybe the 40 will start becoming negatively correlated again to the 60. And if a re recession is averted, then the 60, I think, will do well because earnings then will likely hold up and valuations are now much more reasonable. So for me, the glass half full you know, uh, view here is that at least one of those two engines is going to start working. I can't tell you <laughs> which one it is, unfortunately. But I, I do think it's not yeah. going to be any longer this monolithic market where basically yeah. nothing works. Uh, so now when will the bond market be the engine that starts working? Are bonds getting cheap enough now that it's time to go back in? They're beginning to look interesting. Let's put it this way. Because if I look at investment-grade bonds, uh, I look at short short paper, you know, uh, we already, we just discussed, Hurin just discussed that we were talking about 4.4, uh, 4.5. I think we're getting getting to interesting levels. We're seeing something, finally, that we haven't seen for, again, close to 17 years. Fixed income delivering income. What a concept. <laughs> I think income becomes more and more important as we look forward. I do think that 10-year uh, yields are likely to still go up. But having said that, it does start becoming attractive. So over the coming weeks and sorry, coming weeks and months, I think the first step would be uh, areas like investment grade because you're getting paid healthily to hold good credit. And 
our baseline is not to have a steep recession. We'll have a recession, but I think we might be able to avoid a steep one, which means that fundamentals can still look good. And furthermore, if I look in areas like uh, high yield and uh, emerging markets, mm. you we are now getting paid between 8 and 10% in these areas, which means that finally liquid fixed income starts becoming a very mm. decent alternative to alternatives, which up till now have really been the only area in the last multiple years that could deliver those style of style of return. So I actually am also glass half full at this point for the first time in quite a while. Yurian, uh, just coming back to you on this kind of cash flow way of looking at stock valuations, as I understand it, in fact, you've taught me, in fact, the Fed has been buying bonds, but they've also been buying tips. Is that skewing that as a measurement? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting you, you, uh, you mentioned that, because I'm trying to I'm trying to figure that out actually in my latest uh, my latest research because the, the Fed owns 33% of the the Bloomberg Tips index, so that may not be all of all Tips. So the overall number will be less than that, um, and so it makes you wonder whether there, there's any price signal left. Um, but you know, when I compare, for instance, the Tips break even to the inflation swap market, which is you know a direct swap, I, I don't really see a tremendous amount of price distortion from the Fed owning so many tips. And of course, the Fed owns a bunch of nominals as well. So right. maybe one cancels out the other. So I, I think the, the jury is still out. But clearly, the tips market is saying yeah. a different message than the yeah. headline inflation numbers are, because yeah. the tips break-evens yeah. are around two and a half across yeah. the curve. Yeah. And that, that's that's totally yeah. different from an 8% CPI. Well, so now one more here. Uh, maybe the Bank of Japan has tamed the bond market. It sure hasn't tamed the FX market. And then on Friday, yeah. we got that news out of Nikkei, at least, that they are now intervening to support that yen, which had weakened so much. We've got the BOJ next week. Tell us about that. What does that mean? Is the yen broken? So, you know, what we're seeing is something we haven't seen in a very long period of time. We have the EU, Japan, and the US, all with dramatically different uh, monetary policies. You know, so I think about this, and when times were good to uh, misquote Tolstoy, all good markets, <laughs> functioning markets, look the same. And all of these markets, as they're breaking, they're breaking in different ways. And I think that is that could just... It could, it's never been more apparent than what you see in Japan. The reality is the yen is moving in line with interest rate differentials with the U.S. You look at U.S. 10-year yields and you look at where Japan's yen is, and it continues to move. Can the Bank of Japan actually be, actually, can they control the yen? Uh, I, I have my doubts. You know, they might take some of the air out of it, but ultimately this is a global system which is very interlinked and the interest rate differential is simply too extreme right now to simply intervene to fix it. The other yeah. issue, of course, is Japan does not have the U.S.'s uh, inflation issue and uh, speaking to the size of the bond market that yeah. is held, the U in the U.S., you, depending on what bonds you're looking at, right. the Fed owns between 25 and 33% of the bond market, right? right? So, it's huge. It's a huge impact. Yeah, it's a great discussion. I really owe it to both of you. Thank you so much. That's Sonal Desai of Franklin Templeton, and you're in Timmer of Fidelity Management. Coming up, we take a look at next week on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
Seeing through the eyes of experts gives you a better view. So let's talk about the pain trade. And at Bloomberg, our market vision is 2020. I am shocked by the moves that we're seeing in the rates market. Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Business App, and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Ten years of remarkable growth. That's what President Xi Jinping of China focused on in his speech to the Party Congress last Saturday. Brought about historical rise in China's economic strength. In the past decade, China's GDP has grown from 55 trillion yuan to 114 trillion yuan and come to account for 18.5% of the world economy. Not a bad track record during Xi's time in office, but if President Xi had been willing to go back to before he was president, the story is even more dramatic. Since Deng Xiaoping initiated the open door policy in 1978, China's economy has gone from under $150 billion to nearly $18 trillion last year. Now that growth is slowing down with possible repercussions for the rest of the world, according to the head of the WTO. If China's economy continues to slow, the way we are seeing that will have a big impact on what happens to the world economy. And U.S. officials like Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo say that the open door isn't as open as it used to be. In addition to having resilient supply chains, we want to make sure that American companies are competing on a level playing field with companies in China and around the world, and that's why we've taken actions like restraining the ability to ship some key components. But Bridgewater's Ray Dalio, who's been back and forth to China over the last 30 years, insists that, despite all the problems, he wouldn't bet against Beijing over the long term. I think the longer term picture in China is still bright because I know the people and I know the culture and I think it's good, but they have um, major issues now. And when it comes to China, the person we turn to here at Wall Street Week is Deborah Lair. She is the CEO of Edelman Global Advisory and executive director of the Paulson Institute. Deborah, welcome back. Good to have you. We are all focused on President Xi and what's going on over in Beijing this week. Give us your sense about what we're learning. It strikes me that one of the biggest challenges he has is the economy and growing the economy. And yet I'm not sure we're hearing much about his economic policy. I hear a lot about politics, a lot about security. Uh, that's right. I mean, Xi Jinping gave gave his all-important work report at the beginning of the plenum, and it gave us a few previews of how he's going to start to look at the economy. One of the things that he's emphasizing is common prosperity, his slogan about how he brings greater equality. Uh, one of the things that he's looking at is also how the party can continue to play an important role in the economy. And also, he did give reassurance to foreign companies that they will continue to push for market opening in key areas. Will we get a sense from the personnel that surround him of where it might be headed? Because as I understand it, uh, eventually we will see him come out from behind the, the curtain. And we assume, everybody assumes that he will get his third term. But there's going to be a critical question of who is with him as he comes out. Absolutely. Uh, the important thing, and we're all watching for this weekend, when the new party lineup is going to be announced, there's a lot of rumors starting to fly around, although not as many as there usually are. But it's a big guessing game because that will give us really our first clue into what the third term is going to look like. And I think there are three important things to watch. One is going to be what happens to Lee Kachang, the current premier. Does he continue to stay on the standing committee? He's, he's termed out of staying on as the premier, but could they make him the number two and head of the National People's Congress? 
Two, who will be in the lineup to then take the premier position? And the two leading candidates appear to be Wang Yang, who's viewed as being more uh, open on the economic issues, and Wang Huning, who really is an ideologue. And the third to watch is what happens to Liu He, who's currently the vice premier, who's in charge of the economy and finance. Does he stay? He has good relations with many foreign uh, firms or who really comes in to take his portfolio. Deborah, one of the things that we watch in the West, and we may be right or wrong in watching it, is the extent to which the markets in some way play a substantial role in economic policy over there. It strikes me that it's possible to interpret President Xi thus far as moving somewhat away from the markets. A lot of what he emphasizes right now is ideology, and I think it's what he came out of more than perhaps we've seen in the past. Absolutely. We're seeing much more emphasis on ideology um, under Xi Jinping. And if we look back under Jiang Zemin, Jiang Zemin was saying the party is big enough to include business. She takes it in a different way. He says the party is all encompassing and it should be forced into business. And so ideology is playing a much bigger role. Also, we need to keep an eye on how Xi's favorite slogan, common prosperity is going to be implemented. China, surprisingly, is actually much more unequal than the United States. Hmm. And one of the things that he's trying to do through this common prosperity uh, slogan is say there should be a cap on executive salaries. We should be looking at big companies, particularly in the private sector, giving back to the community and how that's going to be implemented at the same time when he's trying to grow the economy, when he's trying to encourage entrepreneurship and create jobs, is going to be a very tough thing for him to balance. Okay, Deborah, it's always such a pleasure to have you here. You are, are really are our China expert. That's Deborah Lair, and she is CEO of Edelman Global Advisory. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? 
That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We welcome once again our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Professor Larry Summers, of course, former Treasury Secretary. So thank you so much for being with us, Larry, once again. Uh, much of the week was consumed with the drama over the United Kingdom, which is good and ser- serious business for people who are living in Great Britain. But what lessons might it have for the rest of us? Look, at one level, uh, Brit- Britain is unique. They went through Brexit They've had some unique political challenges that have taken place within uh, their Tory party. We've rarely seen the kind of extreme incompetence that was represented by the original uh, trust uh, proposals. But I think there are two lessons that policymakers around the world uh, need to heed. The first is that things can change extraordinarily fast if you lose uh, credibility. Just as it takes a long time to grow a forest, but you can burn it down very quickly, something similar is true with respect to uh, credibility and confidence. And I think at a time of rising uh, government debts and rising interest rates, That's a lesson to be careful that policymakers in many different countries uh, need to take uh, account of. I would say the second more specific uh, lesson just goes to uh, the potential instability in government debt markets. And that's got both a macroeconomic aspect that if your deficit projection starts to get out of uh, control and your real interest rates uh, start to rise uh, rapidly, you can get into a kind of doom loop. And it also has to do with uh, liquidity in the markets and the possibility that you'll get a situation where there'll be selling but there won't be buying, which will beget a kind of liquidation cycle. And I think given the magnitude of the increases in interest rates that you're seeing in other parts of uh, the world, that's something that policymakers are going to have to be very careful of. I thought Secretary Yellen was right to warn about issues around illiquidity in uh, the U.S. Treasury markets. I think we're going to need to be watching our own fiscal projections in the United States uh, very carefully because I think they're going to look different with current market uh, interest rates. If you factor in the recession that's likely to come, that's going to have some significant effects. If you factor in all the different steps that are being taken, whether it's the uh, student loan debt relief or the emergency funding that's going to take place because of the hurricane uh, in Florida, 
or the increases in national security expenditures that I think are almost inevitable given what's happening in other parts of uh, the world, I, I suspect uh, that the fiscal issue is going to need sooner or later to be back on the table in uh, the United States. So I think that we can be amused, those of us who don't live there, by some of the things that are happening uh, in uh, Britain. But if we think of it as an experience that's entirely outside of any kinds of concerns that other countries could have, that would be a real mistake. Well, and Larry, as you say, we have to perhaps pay much more attention to the fiscal side, be a bit more responsible. That's at the same time that many people, and you included, are warning that we may well be heading to a recession here. In the past several years, it's thought that if there's a recession, we can just write some fiscal checks for it. If we don't have that ability, that the way it turns out, Liz Trust did not have over in the United Kingdom. What does that mean about our ability to pull out of it? What is the prospect that when we've had so many years of feast, we may be headed for some famine on higher interest rates, lower growth, uh, and and lower productivity increase? Look, David, there's always a tendency uh, at the beginning or in the early stages of very problematic periods to assume that everything is going to be resolved much more quickly than actually proves to be the case. Think about COVID. I was early on your program and was very worried about uh, COVID. But I certainly didn't envision that it would be something that would still be on people's minds going into the winter of uh, 2023. And I think it's a mistake to think that all of our economic challenges are going to be met quickly, particularly if we heed what I think would be the dangerous advice that are coming from the erstwhile members of Team Transitory that the Fed can back off um, already and not carry through on the increases that the market is now expecting. I think for that to happen would be to almost guarantee a protracted period of stagflation mm -hmm. as we had both, we lacked both price stability uh, and uh, confidence. I think we need to remember that Apart from anything we do with discretionary policy, we have a whole set of natural stabilizers that kick in in our economy. As uh, the economy goes down, uh, tax collections go down, as unemployment crosses certain thresholds, there are increases in unemployment insurance uh, payments. But unfortunately, I think we fired the fiscal cannon so strongly that there's going to be limited room for discretionary fiscal right, policy right. if we have another recession. Uh, finally, Larry, uh, one of the other events of the week was the release, a further release uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve by President Biden, who swears this is not a political issue. But could you give us the economic potential effects of that, those sorts of releases? David, I think the, the initial SPRO release was a powerful thing that over the last months has done a lot uh, to contain uh, oil prices. And I think the Biden administration was exactly right uh, to do it strongly, do it for a long time, do it in coordination uh, with others. I think it's much less clear how much scope there is for that policy to work going forward. 
in part, that's because it's a little bit like QE uh, for the Fed. Whatever you put out there, you're going to have to get back uh, in at some point, and that's going to have the opposite uh, impact on uh, oil prices. Okay, Larry, thank you so much once again for joining us on Wall Street Week. That's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. And this week, it comes from Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics and government, and it's about her native land. Here is Stephanie Flanders. I think Liz Truss started off with the right idea, which is the UK has been held back uh, by a slow growth since the global financial crisis. If actually in the in the two decades before 2008, we'd averaged around two and a half percent growth, which was higher than many of uh, our, our trading partners. We sort of caught up a bit with Germany. We caught up a bit with the US during that period. Um, but since then, growth has been less than half that and certainly much slower uh, than other countries. So it did make sense uh, to focus on growth, uh, and it, it, it made sense uh, to also to be spending some money in her initial um, mini budget on supporting households through a massive energy squeeze as we approach the winter. I think the problem for financial markets is that the government showed no willingness to engage with the difficult trade-offs that all governments are facing in this environment, where they want to stimulate growth, they want to help households face rising energy bills, but they don't want to make it harder for the central bank to bring down inflation and they don't want to be building up a lot of debt just at a time when we know the cost of money, the cost of borrowing all around the world is going up. So it was not what she did, uh, but the way she did it and the kind of gay abandon with which the government was uh, proposing tax cuts that were not funded by any form of, of spending constraint and not targeted to the people who in this particular environment needed help the most. I think what we also saw in the UK, there had been this nervousness in financial markets that maybe dates back to the Brexit referendum, that some of the constraints, the institutional constraints on policymakers in the UK that had prevented, you know, silly politicians from doing silly things, um, that those have been worn away in the years, in the tumult uh, since, since Brexit. And I think what happened when you saw the new chancellor installed, the seventh since 2016, uh, you saw potentially those institutional constraints come back, that the Treasury, the Bank of England is still in charge. That's the message to markets, even if politicians are still messing around at the edges. There's a lot of schadenfreude potentially, and certainly there, but for the grace of God, go I, uh, central bankers and Treasury officials around the world. Uh, they are looking at the UK and wondering what's happened to this uh, previously great nation, but they should also be looking at potential pitfalls that they too will face as we go into this environment in which interest rates are going to be higher, the cost of government borrowing is going to be higher, and potentially strains are going to be put on financial markets. We saw a particular investment strategy, the liability-driven investments in the UK, which, were, which are particular to the UK, mess up the pension market, force the Bank of England to intervene. But we know we saw similar fragility in the US Treasury market back in March of, of 2020. And there may be other things out there that we should be nervous about as we see this very significant shift to a higher interest rate environment. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.